It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, Richard, paper or plastic? You mean which one is better or worse for the environment? Yeah. Um, I guess that, that paper is better than plastic. Uh-oh. <laughs> Actually, the answer is it's complicated. You know, you'd have to do tons of research to really figure this out. I mean, which one emits more pollution, emits more carbon? Is it going to wind up in a landfill or some whale's stomach? And that's what our show is about today, how so many things we think about the environment, answers that we think are easy, turn out to be wrong, or at least much more complicated than we thought. Contrarian Environmentalism with Ted Nordhaus. We are swimming with the long-term big drivers and trends of modernization. So environmentalism, in a lot of cases, wants to swim against those trends. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Our listeners always tell us that they like it when we present things they haven't heard before. So we're going to test that proposition today. So get ready to be pushed well outside your comfort zone. Right. No safe spaces on this show. Our guest is Ted Nordhaus. He's the founder of the Breakthrough Institute, an environmental think tank. Ted is also one of the key thinkers and advocates behind a movement called eco-modernism. Ted Nordhaus joins us via Skype from Oakland, California. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. Well, we want to get into the ideas behind the eco-modernist movement, but first, can you give us a specific example of one of the stances you take that sometimes is a little controversial in some quarters? For example, explain to us why big commercial farming is usually better for the environment than those small organic farms we all love. You know, the reason that we support industrial agriculture is just the evidence in terms of just the environmental impacts associated with every unit of corn or soybeans or chicken or anything else you produce. It's just much more environmentally efficient. So um, you're so you're saying land use. I'm sorry. So you're saying that that uh, modern farming uses less land, right? It uses less land per unit of output. It often uses significantly less uh, fertilizer and nitrogen. Uh, uses less water. Um, by most of the metrics that matter, it's got lower greenhouse gas emissions per 
calorie of output. So you're not saying let's just spray all the pesticides and fertilizers we can, though. I mean, you're advocating. No, for- no. In fact, you know, uh, again, the, the, the trends with with in American agriculture are moving in the other direction, not because of organic agriculture, but just because the pesticides are are getting better and less toxic. It's less important how much volume of pesticide you spray is how toxic the pesticide is at the volumes that you're using it. So, you know, one of the really controversial pesticides right now, uh, it shouldn't be, but it is, is glyphosate, which is branded as Roundup. Um, We use a lot of it, but it's very low toxicity and it's replaced much, much nastier stuff. Glyphosate is actually a success story. It's it's replaced organophosate and other much more nasty herbicides. The, the whole debate over uh, big agriculture versus organic pesticides versus no, no pesticides is, is often governed by slogans. One thing's bad, the other thing is good. Tell us about precision agriculture and, and, and what that is. Yeah, so precision agriculture um, is the use of technology uh, to both uh, much more carefully sort of monitor the growth and uh, needs of crops during the course of their growth, um, and then to deliver the things that they need much more precisely, whether it's uh, satellite imagery or even like tiny little sensors in fields, GPS guidance, things like that we're able to do a whole bunch of things that um, you know, increase out, output, increase yields, um, and uh, reduce the need for various uh, sorts of inputs, um, land, water, fertilizer, pesticides. So um, you know, these include like being able to kind of tell exactly sort of how much water stress or heat stress a crop at any given moment is having, or uh, knowing exactly when it needs nitrogen and fertilizer, and then being able to deliver those things really precisely. So a lot of big farms, for instance, now have moved to what's called fertigation, which are uh, very, very efficient drip irrigation systems in which the fertilizer is dissolved in the water. It's sort of delivered very, very precisely to the crops. So that's a great example of the kind of science-based, data-centric, technology-focused position that the Breakthrough Institute takes a lot. Um, let's back up now a little bit and look at the, the more philosophical side of this movement. Uh, what is eco-modernism? Well, if you look at sort of modern environmentalism kind of conceptually and philosophically, there have been really two big ideas. Um, one is that we need to shrink the human footprint um, so that uh, we have less impact on the environment. We need uh, less of nature for human well-being, and we can leave more of nature for the sort of rest of creation to thrive. The second big idea is that we need to harmonize human societies with nature, Uh, that human societies have sort of fallen from nature, gotten out of sync with nature, that over the long term, will be punished for that, and that will create catastrophe and collapse. Um, And what we say in the manifesto is that, you know, in a world with seven going on nine or 10 billion people, most of whom want to live something that looks like a modern life, you can do one of those things, but you can't do both. 
you can shrink the footprint, which actually means becoming sort of less dependent on nature. Critics will say, what about localism? What about small scale? What you appear to be advocating, at least to some ears, is uh, an industrialization of farming, all of us living in big cities, um, going out perhaps on, on our days off to, to have a look at the unfettered countryside. But we don't live like that, especially in the United States. Richard, you where, live exactly where, like well, that. I do. But I, I, I do, but a lot of people in America live in, live in, in exurbs. They live in villages. They live in farming areas. Um, those, are, those, are, those small farms are hobby farms. They produce a vanishingly small amount of our actual uh, food. With respect, um, I think the term hobby farms is a little dismissive. All right. I, 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 I'm, I'm, they're not all hobby farms, but they're, they're also kind of, uh, this is not the reality of American agriculture today. Um, and 2%, 2% of, uh, of, of the American population works in agriculture. That's down from 50% 100 years ago and 90% 200 years ago. Um, so this is the world we live in today. Globally, it's an urban planet already, and it's going to get more urban. And it's getting more urban not for environmental reasons. It's getting more urban because, you know, what, uh, what agriculture has actually meant for human societies throughout, you know, most of human existence has been just deep agrarian poverty. It's meant women and children not getting educations, working in the fields, doing hard agrarian labor. And, and the reality is that, that most people, given an option to do almost anything else, decide to do something else. Ted, let's talk a little bit about what you're up against in terms of, of ideology. Many environmentalists believe that we need to reverse a lot of trends in our civilization. We need to use less energy, stop focusing on economic growth, go back to a simpler way of life, you know, or as Joni Mitchell saying, go back to the garden. And you're arguing essentially the opposite. Why? Um, well, you know, first of all, we're not going to do that. Um, and and even, those, even those environmental folks making those cases aren't going to do that. These are people who live among the most high-consumptive, privileged lives that humans have ever lived. I mean, it's not accidental that sort of environmental consciousness and ideology, uh, you know, sort of comes into being in the years after World War II, where these developed Western economies have kind of, for the first time like ever, you know, they sort of mass societies have escaped scarcity. And it's at this moment that a bunch of people in those societies decide that it's all been a sort of terrible mistake. But the reality is that none of those people are actually going to go back to living that way. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Ted Nordhaus of the Breakthrough Institute, an environmental think tank, and also an eco-modernist. And on this show, we're kind of explaining what that is, and uh, we'll, have, we'll have more coming up. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Before we continue with Tev, it's our new feature, our recommendations of things to watch, listen to, or read. Jim, you're chomping at the bit. I know you've got something to share with us. Well, this is not a new idea, and it's probably already on the reading list of a lot of How Do We Fix It listeners, but I want to put in a plug for The Economist. And Richard, you were actually the one who got me a subscription to this magazine. I did? Uh, a couple of years ago, yeah. And... <laughs> You know, I don't read that much in print anymore. I read the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the Times on That's weekends. That's quite a lot, Jim. <laughs> but no, compared yeah. to I'm, yeah. Yeah, as a lifelong magazine and journalism lover. Yeah. Um, but The Economist does really, really solid work. And I find myself all of a sudden caring about the election in Ghana or, you know, getting a better understanding of what's going on with China and the oppression of the Uyghurs. A lot of issues that our mainstream press in the U.S. don't do a great job covering. Well, when I was a daily... Uh, news guy when I worked at ABC News and I did newscasts every day when I took a two week vacation I'd come back and I'd always be amazed that we're still talking about exactly the same thing and that there isn't really that much difference between one day and the next and what is good about The Economist is I think they, they take a step back. So getting back to our interview with Ted eco-modernism might seem like it's just hard-headed technocratic thinking but it has a spiritual side, which, which really interests me. In your manifesto, you say, modernization theology should be grounded in a sense of profound gratitude to creation, human and non-human. It should celebrate, not desecrate, the technologies that led our pre-human ancestors to evolve. So do you see the potential to win over more religious and conservative people who believe that we are stewards of God's earth. Yeah, um, and you know we've had a bunch of conversations with a whole set of folks who actually see in eco-modernism a different story about humans and nature and the environment that um, actually kind of uh, fits better with their sort of religious and spiritual orientation. So at the core of this, we are arguing that humans haven't fallen from nature, we've risen, and that our technologies don't alienate us from the world um, and from our own humanity, but they actually create our humanity. That's what made us human, was our tools, our technologies. Early tool use, uh, early use of sort of fire and the ability to cook and and ferment uh, foods and things like that actually allows us to digest and consume much more protein, uh, which allowed us to evolve and develop bigger brains. So this idea that sort of uh, technology robs our humanity and something essential about humans, it's just wrong. Your organization is called the Breakthrough Institute. Talk about 
the need for technology and invention to play a role in reducing the impact of climate change. Yeah, so, you know, at Breakthrough, we really focus on technological solutions to environmental problems. And uh, that's not just because we're kind of, we love technology or we're near Silicon Valley or anything like that. That's because technology is the thing that mediates the relationship between human well-being and environmental impacts. Like the move from hunting and gathering to agriculture, that's technology mediating this relationship between humans and environmental impacts. And so let's bring it up to today. Um, in the economic sphere, there's a, there's a widespread view that the more we consume, the bigger our economies get, the, uh, the worse the impact will be on the environment. There will be more carbon emissions, more waste, more everything. But you point to a longstanding trend uh, that you want to accelerate, which you call decoupling. Explain how that works. Decoupling is really decoupling environmental impacts from economic activity. And that's been going on for a very long time. Um, that as our technologies become more efficient, uh, I mean, one of my favorite uh, kind of little trends, you know, you think of the uh, what we, we used to call a tin can, and now it's an aluminum can. And if you look at the amount of material, even in an aluminum can, after it switches over from tin in the 50s, from like the late 50s, you need to... Yeah, I'm over. sorry. We, we... <laughs> You're hearing our studio watchdog in the background there. <laughs> Give us a sec. Apologies for the interruption. Ted, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. You know, a great example of this is, um, you know, what we used to call a tin can because um, they were made from tin. And then in the 50s, we uh, substituted and started making, it with, making those cans with aluminum. And even since we switched over from tin to aluminum, the amount of aluminum in a tin can has fallen like 90% for the same size can doing exactly the same function. So, um, so what you're saying is that over time, our economy can grow and our environmental impact will actually decrease significantly. Yeah. As societies become more developed and more affluent, fertility rates decline. Um, so the population growth, which actually has been the biggest driver of rising in, environmental impacts over the last century or, or so, uh, fertility rates are falling rapidly all over the world. Economies are still growing around the world, but as economies get richer, they start growing a lot slower. So, you know, in the U.S., Europe, Japan, now we sort of struggle to maintain like 2% annual growth rates. To what extent does environmentalism depend on democracy, on the relationship between individuals and their government? Where do we as individuals fit into this picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the solutions I'm talking about aren't really so much global. I mean, a global transition to clean energy will ultimately impact things like climate change at a global scale. But I'm actually not of the view that the sort of world is going to sit down at a UN conference and decide to rapidly ratchet down carbon emissions. I mean, we've been trying to do that for three decades. So do we have to invent our way out? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that sort of technological innovation is the key. And that once you have cheap, clean energy technologies, the 
sort of political and economic lift necessary to sort of really deeply cut emissions gets much easier. And you don't even necessarily need an international agreement to do it. So, Ted, you're a bit of a skeptic on the idea that renewable energy is going to solve the problem all by itself, wind and solar, and that'll do it because of the massive amount of land they require and also because of the lack of reliability. So one of the kind of benchmark positions of the Breakthrough Institute is the importance of nuclear power. And you're seeing some progress on a lot of these small nuclear startups. Are you optimistic that we're going to get past this old-fashioned model of just a few giant nuclear plants and we're going to start seeing little small you know, modular reactors popping up all over the place, including, say, you know, as you mentioned, factories where they need a lot of heat to do processes as well as electricity? Well, I think nuclear is going to have to kind of get past these big, massive public works projects if it's going to have significant future. Um, And, you know, there are promising developments. There are a bunch of these startups, and they're not just sort of ideas on paper. I think the big question is just going to be, can they get to a point where they're really cheap? Ted, in the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, it says, we write this document out of deep love and emotional connection to the natural world. Are you hopeful that that love for the natural world is going to see us through, that we'll find success? I am. Um, We are swimming with the long-term big drivers and trends of modernization. So environmentalism, in a lot of cases, wants to swim against those trends, against the intensification and and scaling up of agriculture, um, against um, the sort of shift of of large populations from agrarian to urban living arrangements. Um, and that's just that just that will fail. It has failed. It will continue to fail. Um, and on the other hand, I look at a bunch of these trends and kind of go, you know, look, we're not going to go back to a pre-industrial world or to the North America as it looked uh, before we cleared the forest and hunted all the mammoths into extinction. Um, but I think we can get to a, a world where we may not stabilize at two degrees, but uh, I think we'll stabilize at, you know, three. And we get to a, a future where we actually have a big rainforest still in the Amazon and we, we leave a lot of uh, biodiversity and a lot of habitat that just exists for its own sake and not to meet human needs. That's a future that I think is entirely plausible. I think it's possible. And I think the key to it is actually accelerating a set of these processes in terms of agricultural modernization and urbanization, especially. Great. Okay, great. All right. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, guys. Jim, I want to start with an element of discord because I think that Ted was a little too dismissive of romantic environmentalists. I think that every movement, if it's to change society, needs its element of romance and even occasionally nostalgia. I feel that that we need to include individuals, include local groups in our environmental movement if we're going to improve our relationship with our planet. And so uh, I, I would 
I, I accept a lot of what he's saying, but I think the tone is a little bit forbidding, especially for those of us who need persuading. Right. Well, it, it, it may be a tone thing, but at the same time, I mean, I spent a lot of time in this world, and there is a wing of environmentalism that, that is very rooted in this kind of nostalgia, this idea that humans yeah. are the problem. I think that some of the warm, fuzzy ideas, I mean, I like going to the farmer's market, getting my, my organic produce, but that's not going to save the world. And so, yeah, it's important. Let's not just stress what they're against. Let's stress what they're for. They're for a healthier, greener planet. So you can say, oh, everybody living in cities sounds so modern, but we can't all live on our own individual mountaintops. There's not enough mountaintops. You know, we, we can't encourage everybody to spread out. Let's live like you do, Richard, in relatively dense areas and then put aside more land for real nature. It's how do we fix it with a question mark at the end. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And we are a production of Davies Content. Uh, Davies Content makes uh, – we really – things out reduce things in fact i i think we're ruthless editors is that why i never hear my own voice in the podcast once you're done with it exactly exactly find out more at daviescontent.com and as always thanks for listening Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.